into the wilderness and they find a ball, a little ball. And the Christian says, that little ball needs a cause. And the atheist says, hey, you're right, little balls need causes. They walk a little further, they find another ball that's the size of the earth. And the Christian says, that ball needs a cause. And the atheist says, you're right, little balls need causes, big balls need causes. Then they walk a little further and they find a ball the size of the universe. And the Christian says, that ball needs a cause. And the atheist says, no, it's just there. And that's the response you get when Bertrand Russell debated the Jesuit priest and the great historian, Dr. Uh, Father Copleston, Dr. Copleston. Uh, during that debate, uh, he, Bertrand Russell wanted nothing to do with the cosmological argument for God's existence. He said, all I should say about that is, the universe is just there. Now, I don't see why we should stop our thinking on that point, especially when there's some agnostics like Anthony Flew, who thinks that that's the most important issue that we should uh, should discuss. Uh, he mentioned some flaws in the cosmological argument. I referred to, to these earlier, uh, the teleological argument, and rather than address the issues about the impossible... You know, I'll give you an illus- uh, a simple illustration why it's impossible to have an, an actual infinite set of things, okay? Such as an actual infinite set of events. If you had an actual infinite set, an infinite number of pens, you could always add one more pen to it. And then you have an infinite plus one. That's ludicrous. Uh, if you took half of the infinite set, no matter how much you take from an infinite set, the set would always be infinite. And that's ludicrous. Uh, it just it generates absurdity. So there has to be, there cannot be an actual infinite set of finite events in time. Therefore, there had to be a first event. Very, very clear. Uh, he also mentioned... Uh, that analogy, similar but not the same, that's true, that's what analogy means. Uh, but I'd like to mention that uh, what's going on with astronomers because of the Big Bang and also uh, other scientists as well. Now, two astronomers, Sir Frederick Hoyles and, and uh, Dr. Wickramasinghe, two of uh, Great Britain's leading scientists. Uh, this is in... Uh, uh, Dr. Geisler's work that was in, in the intellectual speak out about God, Dr. Norman Geisler stated this. The astronomers, Sir Fred Hoyle and, and Wick Ramson, by the way, they started out as agnostics, now they believe that some kind of God exists. The astronomers, Sir Fred Hoyle and Wick Ramson, concluded to their own surprise that even if the whole universe were a kind of tribiotic soup, the chances uh, against life arising spontaneously would still be only one in 10 to the 40,000th power. This, they vividly say, would, would be about like the chances of a Boeing 747 resulting from a tornado raging through a junkyard. These were two astronomers, two world of the world's leading astronomers. They looked at the evidence and they said, hey, life did not get here by accident. It takes intelligent intervention. Robert Jastrow, another agnostic, who is an astronomer, said this in his book, God of the Astronomers. He's still agnostic at this day, but he says this is something, this is where the science has taken us with the Big Bang. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And so now there's many Astronomers. Hugh Ross himself, who he is an astronomer, states this. Astronomers who do not draw theistic or deistic conclusions, in other words, astronomers who believe in God's existence, are, be, 
who do not believe in God's existence are becoming rare. And even the few dissenters uh, hint that the tide is against them. Jeffrey Burbage of the University of California at San Diego complains that his fellow astronomers are rushing off to join the first church of Christ of the Big Bang. In other words, there is a big, big uh, movement that is going on among uh, some of the world's leading astronomers that are starting to recognize that we just could not get here by chance. He mentioned David Hume. David Hume was a brilliant thinker. Uh, at the same time, though, David Hume, though he really slammed the law of causality, he said, well, we can know that something happens before something else all the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that A caused B. But David Hume wrote in a letter to John Stewart, it's in the letters of David Hume, letter to John Stewart, but allow me to tell you that I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. I only maintain that our certainty of the falsehood of that, of that proposition proceeded neither from intuition nor demonstration, but from another source. In other words, David, David Hume believed in causality. Uh, he just didn't know how you come up with that conclusion, but he knew that it was ridiculous to reject it. And so causality stands, uh, still stands, and it is the main premise in the cosmological argument, the argument cause and effect for God's existence. As far as uh, morality, such a thing is right and wrong. I think the most consistent atheist that I've ever read is Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher who died in the year 1900. I'll paraphrase his thinking. He stated that God is dead. In other words, God didn't create man. Man created God by his own imagination. And then uh, man grew up and we realized that God died. He stated that God is dead and all traditional values have died with him. And he said, said that therefore we need a group of supermen who have the courage to create their own hard values rather than the soft values of Christianity. Uh, Nietzsche was one of Hitler's favorite philosophers. Uh, Nietzsche didn't like what, what the, where the direction the Nazis were going in even before Hitler was around, but that's too bad. Once you say we've got to throw out, uh, throw out the older... Uh, values, the traditional values, the values of the Bible, well, where does it take you? But he recognized if God does not exist, then God's laws do not exist. The highest thing in the universe of value is a human being. No man can tell another man what is right or what is wrong. Um, getting back to Dr. Johnny said, uh, talked about some people believe that it's probable that women aren't equal to men, and he disagrees with it. I disagree with it as well, but the thing is there, uh, on that particular issue, he accepts it as truth that women are equal with men. I accept it as truth as well, even though uh, there are some people who disagree. That's what we're getting here for the debate on, is to settle what which belief is uh, probable. Uh, just one more note here. Uh, St. Augustine wrote, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And if you're searching and if you're seeking, I really believe you should give the God of the Bible uh, a try. But I would say this, that is not what I'm basing my argument on. But if you are seeking, look and you shall find. Thank you and God bless you. Keep going. You know, like yeah. anyone want to contribute an observation, uh, a question? Uh, I mean, there's so there are so many. Uh, Phil, I think better than I, has raised a whole range of avenues we could 
go off. Creationism, uh, theology, documentary hypothesis, Hume, Kant, God knows what. Um, and uh, you, uh, you just need to give us a push. All those puns are intended. I kind of have a question um, from a lot of what you said, Dr. John. Everything is straight philosophy. What evidence have you examined? How do you define the truth? How do you define what reality is? instead of just some cerebral type of thing that's surreal and exists in our imagination. In order to draw some kind of a common ground, that has to be addressed. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, well, I'd answer your question succinctly by saying you have to draw, a very, you have to draw the conclusions about the truth very cautiously. Um, and of course, I don't come into the world as sort of an independent agent saying, okay, I'm here to establish the truth of it as I see it. Most of my truths are received. Sort of the best that I can do is, um, let's say, strike a skeptical pose with respect to the received truths, um, which I suppose is what I'm doing. Um, I suppose your question might actually bend in the direction of what is the foundation? Upon what foundation do truth claims rest um, if they don't rest in some sort of faith? Um, and I would answer that they rest, have to rest primarily and should not deviate too far from the census. That is uh, the issue of the equality of men and women, right? I suppose I could take, and certainly inhabitants of our civilized tradition have taken the inequality of men and women as granted, but not on the basis of the census, on the basis of documents handed down, biblical documents. You can certainly take things that are written in both the Old and the New Testament as dragging you to the conclusion or pushing you to the conclusion that there isn't the equality of the sexes. But I think if you didn't begin with that sort of dogma and you thought, oh, wait a second, it looks like they need to eat too, it looks like they breathe too, and it looks like they are more or less as capable as I am uh, intellectually and physically. If you stay fairly close to the realm of the senses, then uh, I don't think you get too lost. And uh, I would say that this is with respect as much to the damage done by deviating in the realm of um, religious dogma as it is in any dogma, political dogma, right? I mean, how do tragedies happen? It's when the intellectual dogma, and this may sound strange coming from an intellectual, that the intellectual dogma, more than anything else, can do the damage, right? That is when you put blinders on and say, okay, well, I've reached the conclusion through sheer logic, through sheer reasoning, that Jews are inferior to us, okay, or that blacks are inferior to us. That's when tragedy happens, because you closed off the senses. I mean, if you lifted that, those written dogmas, be they biblical dogmas or, or Mein Kampf or whatever, if you push those aside, you go, wait a second. It looks like that person suffers like I do. It looks like that person feels like I do. You don't get up to any really bad nonsense. No one hopes. Um, so let's say you, you ground yourself in the senses and stay pretty close to that, and they show a very good reason. We're, we're straying from the agenda somewhat. We're going to <laughs> allow Dr. Fernandez to respond to that question, but it appears as though the audience is ready to maybe uh, engage this gentleman. Uh, what we'll do is, like I said, allow Dr. Fernandez to respond if he so desires. 
We'll take a short break after that, though, and then we'll reconvene. There's a standing microphone right there. I ask you if you do have a question. Uh, well, it, it may not be imperative that we use the microphone as long as you speak up. Yeah, I would rather use the microphone for everybody else, but also for right. the video. You heard the lady in the middle right there. Use the microphone. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll re respond not so much to the question, but to uh, Dr. John's response. He said that we should stay close to the realm of the senses and you won't get too lost. And I agree with that to a certain degree. That's why I'm, I'm more of a Thomist. I, I argue more like Thomas Aquinas than, than St. Anselm. Anselm tried to prove God's existence just through reason. Aquinas started with the world of the senses and then tried to logically argue to God's existence. Uh, but there are some that want us to stay so close to the realm of the senses that they don't want us to leave the realm of the senses. They're called logical positivists, they're the dinosaurs of philosophical dinosaurs of our age, but they hold to the verification principle which says that truth can only be found through the five senses. The problem with that view is the statement, truth can only be found through the five senses, that statement cannot be proven through the five senses. So if it's true, it's false. It refutes itself. So it's a self-refuting statement. So people have left that. People like A.J. Ayer and the whole nine yards who recently died, by the way. Uh, but where does that leave us? If the statement that truth can only be found through the five senses, if that is true, it, it would contradict itself because it can't be proven by the five senses. It means that there are ways beyond the five senses of finding truth. And, uh, and so uh, I think we could stay close to the realm of senses, uh, the realm of the senses, but then if they start leaving us areas where we need an answer, such as the Big Bang model telling us the universe needs a cause, then I think we should go where it takes us rather than saying uh, it, it's just there. As far as God of the gaps, I don't think that it's the God of the gaps anymore. I think right now it's the mighty Sagan of the gaps. It's the Carl Sagan of the gaps. He's talking about the oscillating model when science is proven and false. All the available scientific evidence shows the universe had a beginning. Sagan says it doesn't have a beginning, not because of scientific evidence, but because he's trying to fill the, the gaps with his atheistic assumptions rather than accepting where science has taken us, and that is to the Big Bang, the, the uh, starting of the universe, and therefore, since from nothing, nothing comes, the universe needs a cause. Can I reply to that briefly, sir? Um, and, um, I, I suppose one consequence of the debate is that there is a tendency of one person to begin to um, caricature the position of the other person. I, I hope I'm not doing that to you, Phil. Um, but um, in other words, you create a straw man. You listen to the other person's argument, and then you say, well, this is what he said, but you represent it in such a, in an incomplete way. And you make, in other words, a straw man, which is easy to knock over. I didn't precisely say that we find truth only in out of the senses, uh, but you cleave fairly close to them. Of course, we're not entirely in the realm of the senses. Right now, what we're doing is in the realm of language, and that's not exactly in the realm of the senses. Uh, the whole discourse, the entire life of the mind, perhaps even the life of what we call the spirit, whatever that is, um, is not in the realm, really, of the senses. Um, and yet we wouldn't deny that we, we have language. Um, but we have to tread back in the direction of the senses before we go marching off and saying, well, I know this to be absolutely true. Well, how do you know this is absolutely true? Because I know this, that, and the other thing. Well, 
you should double, triple check back with the sensory realm before you march off in that way. One example comes to mind is that our very concepts, and this, I don't think this would get too esoteric, but our very ideas, the very life of the mind, our language, the way we think about the world, is ultimately, I believe, rooted in the senses. This is a controversial claim. It's something that's being worked out by cognitive psychologists and linguists uh, late in the 20th century, but um, one point is that all of our language is ultimately rooted in the sensory realm because we talk about things in the world uh, metaphorically, analogically, right? Our very word soul, for example, etymologically is rooted in the German word Zela, um, which is rooted in the German word for sea um, or ocean. Um, and how that comes to be, how you get from uh, how you come to get from the German word for sea to the English word for soul, don't really know. I've always been attracted to the hypothesis that it perhaps had something to do with the first time the Germans, the landlocked people, saw a vast body of water. This created such a feeling in them that they gave a new word to it, a word which corresponded not only with this abstraction we now call soul, but the origins of that abstraction that we now call soul. And they were trying to give some word, some voice, to the feeling that is awoken in them when they go down to the ocean. Um, it's an esoteric point. I hope you'll both of you are with me, and I don't know what you're going to say. It's just to open it up a bit. Uh, first thing is that the Buddhists always say God is and is not, and I've never had a problem with that. And which brings me to the, the focus of this whole debate, which is logical, rational, Western, uh, academic, intellectual. And it seems to me there's another way of knowing, and in particular, it's been my personal experience, which is all I really can argue from, that women have this way of knowing maybe more than men because in childbirth they're closer to creation. So there's a kind of knowledge that maybe women have on this issue of whether God exists or not. And in your debate, the only woman who's been mentioned is Mother Teresa and not as a thinker. So I guess I want to ask both of you. Uh, I, I want to ask both of you, how do you think this debate would be enlarged by including perhaps a knowing that women might have, or mystical men, or even Buddhists, or non-Westerners, or non-rational thinkers? And maybe that's it. The, the, the other comment, though, I want to make is I, I am a practicing Christian, and I'm enjoying both of these presentations. And I was always struck by the fact that when Mary was sitting at Christ's feet, Martha was in the kitchen, and Martha's running around saying, why isn't Mary out here helping me? Okay? Christ said, well, actually, Mary has a better part. So I'm looking for Mary's part in this debate. Thank you. Go ahead on this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, the lady asks if there's any ways to know beyond reason. She seemed to be bringing the, the feelings, the emotions, and, and, and the will into it. That's what I tried to do in the latter portion of my opening statement. Uh, bring up someone like Blaise Pascal, who was fed up with the type of thing we're doing today, the intellectual dialogues. He was fed up with them. And so he tried to penetrate the heart and said that you need to choose. You need to choose and desire and hope for God because if God doesn't exist, this place is so horrible, and there's never going to be that just punishment or that just reward uh, or, or whatever. 
So uh, there are ways to know beyond reason. Uh, but we can go too far. Now the Buddhists like to say things like, uh, uh, they like to meditate on the sound of one hand clapping and things like that. And they try to refute the law of non-contradiction. And they try to claim that something can both be true and false at the same time. But just the fact that uh, someone would say, well, I think you guys are wrong, I think the Buddhists are right. You're using the law of non-contradiction to hold up a system which denies the law of non-contradiction. You're saying, you're wrong, they're right, when the Buddhists are saying everybody's right. So, uh, it's, it's a problem, it's always been a, a big problem to try to refute the law of non-contradiction. Just to say that the law of non-contradiction isn't true, is to assume that it is true, because the opposite of that statement uh, would be false. Also, I'm not saying it's not true or true. No, no, no. Uh, by, by the way, when I, this is, uh, also Dr. John, but I got the wrong idea. If I hear something into what somebody says, and I think that somebody else might take something further out of it, I will often refute that other issue, even if I don't think that that particular person said it. And uh, maybe I need to make myself a little more clear. You also talked about Mary worshiping at Christ's feet. Uh, I believe that the best thing a person on earth can do is to worship at Christ's feet. But the first thing you got to prove is that God exists and persuade people that God exists, that Jesus is God, and then it comes time to worship at His feet. People won't worship at the feet of a God that they don't believe in. But, but another question is that it was women who first perceived Christ as, as risen, mm -hmm. which is not the five senses, mm -hmm. and the men who didn't believe it and then had to go see it for themselves. But there are many, there are many great women of the faith, uh, many great wise women, uh, many women who are great leaders. But one of the problems is again what Christ taught about womanhood and what professing Christians have taught about womanhood often are two different things. Jesus Christ, I believe, held a high view of woman, much higher than the church has portrayed over the years. Again, uh, if you make slams on the Christian church, a lot of them are justified. But when you start slamming God, then I think it's hard to prove it. I, I, I'm not really sure I even isolated your, your question in my mind, but let me see if uh, I did somewhat. Um, just very briefly, I think you were suggesting that there was something wrong in, with not uh, emphasizing women more in our discussion of the subject, and I don't know if I... No, that's completely off. Okay, well, good. I, I'm not saying anything's wrong. I'm saying, what do you both think that to include women's knowledge, women's experience? Okay, that's it. Uh, right, but, but that, you see, I would, and I think we've talked about this before, Ellen. That is, I mean, that seems to be something in the realm of a, uh, not entirely justifiable or verifiable, I should say, uh, claim. That is to say that you should weave women's unique experience into the issue of the uh, our ideas about God um, because there is something that they might have or there's something that they do have that men don't have that might be true um, I don't know that we have any real understanding of any unique uh, capacity in this respect that women have and if it's true that's nice but I don't know if there's any way of verifying that um, your point about women say being closer to uh, some vital things, for example, the bearing of children, perhaps closer to the earth in some sense of speaking, that's obviously true. But where, how you make a leap from that to any conclusions about your duties as a Christian, the possible existence of God, the existence of the soul, 
I don't know how you could possibly or would possibly make such leaps. Um, I can I could agree that women have some vital understandings about nurturing that men don't have a clue about. Enough is clear, I think. Uh, but that they then have some, uh, let's say, uh, fast track to divine understanding. Um, I don't know how you can possibly uh, reach any such conclusion. And again, I'm not quite sure I'm responding to your question. Anyone else have more coherent thoughts than I do on that? Okay, for me, the, uh, the biggest source, I guess, if you're going to judge if God is reliable, or God is there or not, is looking at the Bible. And I have to ask myself, is the Bible a reliable uh, document? And so, I think that one area that nobody's touched on that is that historical and archaeological evidences that have been gained throughout the centuries. And as far as I know, there's not a single archaeological evidence that takes away from the Bible or has ever disproven anything from the Bible, although there seems to be a mountain of evidence that would tend to support the Bible. You really want to raise the subject. And just to clue in on just one area, if I could. Excuse me, before you clarify your question, I don't want any outbursts from the audience or anything like that. This is going to be, um, this is going to remain structured. Please, I don't, don't want anybody marking out any of the participants. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess one of the things you have to look at is the reliability of the Bible. Okay. So, do you think that, say, Homer's Iliad, the copy of what we believe we have now, do you believe that that is? fairly essentially what Homer wrote. And if it, it is, you're basing that on a little bit over 600 manuscript copies that are in existence today. Well, the Bible has over 24,000 manuscripts of ancient evidences. For Homer, there's 500 years difference between the time they were written originally and the earliest documents we have. For the Bible, there's 25 years or so. So in the, the earliest accounts, there were still people living with witnesses and things. Mm -hmm. um, we could be here for, um, for months on this one question, but let me preface it by saying that, again, there is certainly evidence concerning the existence of Jews, concerning the existence of Jesus Christ as a historical figure. No problem. Um, but you want to be very cautious, and this is recapitulating the point of my talk, before you take whatever evidence does exist and say, well, okay, I'm going to conclude on the basis of this evidence that there is a transcendental God and who is, the, who is my Savior and all those other things that go with it. I still think there is a leap of belief and faith right involved at that point. Uh, so just to clarify that. And... Um, I'm not even sure where to begin with respect to the evidence concerning the existence of um, 
uh, or the, the, let's say, the verity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, might as well start right with the main man, uh, that is uh, Jesus Christ. I mean, certainly there is um, independent witnesses. Um, the Roman historian Tacitus, um, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, um, and of course they weren't contemporaries, right? Um, and so you have observations that an individual, Jesus Christ, existed and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, good enough. Um, beyond that, you've got to have at least some faith in the sources, um, and because the next sources are a couple of generations afterward, right, the Gospels. Um, uh, in this respect, I would take exceptions to Helen's characterization of the um, woman's first witnessing of uh, Christ's uh, resurrection. I mean, you need to really qualify a statement like that, particularly by a historian, uh, that this is not a matter of fact, right? That this is something based on evidence which is compiled not by an independent witness, but by a believer, right? Because, I mean, if I am a believer in something, and then I'm going to write a documentary account of my beliefs, is it likely that I'm going to interpret things and compile evidence in a way which is going to make the story seem suitable and corroborate my beliefs? Of course. Um, and so, beyond Tacitus and Josephus, what we mostly have is the witnesses of believers. Um, and so there's a great deal of skepticism. And again, even if and this is a big if, you took all of the Gospels as the Gospel truth, right? Um, even if you took the truth that Jesus, it is true that Jesus Christ exists, lives this particular life, um, even if you went so far as to say Jesus Christ was crucified and was resurrected, um, rose, came back and rose, I should say, um, you, I still think, are still implicated in a leap. Uh, you still have to believe that he is brought back to life and resurrected by a particular God, by the same God who gives you a certain set of moral and legal codes to live by, right? Um, that is, the attempt to fill, let's say, the chasm of doubt with archaeological and documentary details I think it's, it's always fraught with the, the fundamental problem of finally you still have the leap of faith, which is fine. I mean, it seems a necessary part of religion. Um, oh, I must say my reply to your, to your question is just really superficial, really scratching the surface. I mean, if we got into some, I think, a probably more essential document as it concerns God, um, the God of the Christians, uh, the Old Testament, and the Bible in general, uh, the evidence becomes altogether more problematic about authorship and... Uh, the actual identity of the God. I suppose we always read the subject of the Gnostic Gospels, and my students could help me. Um, but uh, I'll back off unless you want to elaborate. But another question. Okay. Yeah. This this particular question was a little little bit off of our focus. Our focus is on does the Judeo-Christian God exist? Uh, I would like to come back and maybe debate the issue, issues such as creation versus evolution. Uh, did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, are the New Testament manuscripts reliable? Things like that, so I'd be willing to, but uh, we're getting a little bit off track, but I would like to say this, that uh, what the gentleman was pointing out, apparently, uh, we have complete New Testament in copies that date back to about 200 A.D., 
uh, about 100 to 150 years after they were supposedly written, yet we only have seven copies of Plato's writings, and there's a gap of 1,200 years between those copies and when Plato supposedly wrote. Yet the average historian today will say, yes, Plato definitely wrote that, but somebody other than the Apostle, we don't know if John wrote that, we don't know if this and all. Well, the argument used to go by, by skeptics uh, uh, about the New Testament and all was that they were written around after 200 A.D. Now we're starting to realize that Paul wrote, that they are admitting that Paul wrote at least most of the epistles that he wrote. In fact, they admit that he wrote 1 Corinthians. They admit that the Apostle Paul wrote that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, the Apostle Paul lists the different resurrection, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. During, while giving that list, he said that over 500 people were still alive who had seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, none of these scholars want to call the Apostle Paul a liar. So they try to explain away the evidence as maybe a little bit too much pepperoni pizza or something along those lines. But these people died for that testimony. We see that in the writings of Ballas, Tacitus, Antonius, Pliny the Younger, Emperor Trajan, Emperor Hadrian, the Jewish Talmud, Lucian, Josephus. Many ancient non-Christian writers record that these people were dying for that testimony, yet Paul said over 500 had seen him risen from the dead. Many of them died for their faith, so I think that's reliable testimony, not testimony that we should just throw away. That's a later debate. If you want to have me back or something like that, I'll be all for it. I'll, be, I'll come back a month from now if you want. We'll do it. <laughs> okay, this one's going to be more towards Dr. Fernandez. It's a little off base since we're talking about the Jesus Christian and everything. You open yourself up though. Uh, Peter John addressed in the very beginning. He brought up uh, Hinduism, Judaism, and so forth. You addressed Zeus. What is, and you keep referring to cause. Okay, what is to say your cause is the correct cause? Who's to say the Buddhist cause is the correct cause? the Hindu cause. We keep talking, now we brought up artifacts. Well, we're centralized in the Jerusalem area. Okay, so if we go to China and start digging up facts, who's to say that their facts don't go farther back and that their cause is correct over the Jesus Christ of Christianity cause? Well, you have a lot of things I think that could be said for that. Number one, the amount of uh, eyewitness testimony and the uh, of the uh, miracles of Christ uh, in fact, in 52 AD, you got a historian named Vallis trying to explain away, trying to explain why it got dark while Christ was being crucified. Uh, so you have the miracle claims and the evidence for them. What you also have, though, too, is I gave arguments and evidence for God being an intelligent being and a personal being. That is not the God of Buddhism. That is not the God of the Hindu. The, their God is an impersonal force. It's an it. We are all part of God. They're not looking for a cause of the universe. They're saying the universe is God. And the arguments that I gave will go work against that. In fact, I've got a, an awful lot of documentation here that would disprove uh, pantheism, the belief that God is the universe. But just the fact that you're dialoguing with me puts Hinduism and Buddhism on very weak ground. Just the fact that you're dialoguing with me seems to me that you're assuming your own existence and my own existence. To the Hindu, we're all one. We're all God. Yet we're dialoguing and we're disagreeing. And so I think that tells me that Christianity is on much firmer footing because we are separate individuals, separate people, 
separate beings and we're communicating with one another, we are not one. I guess I would just compound this question by inserting um, how you might persuade, say, 700 million Muslims that they're on the wrong track, that they haven't quite found the, um, the right savior, because you have a fair amount of evidence that Muhammad actually did live more, uh, let's say, uh, verifiable evidence than even concerning the life of Jesus Christ, since it was more recent, um, in part. Um, so, is there any need, and if there is, how would you uh, feel the uh, issue of the uh, misbegotten, if that's what it is, the misbegotten faith of uh, Islam? I think, I think there's an awful lot of uh, evidence that could be brought forth against Islam. Uh, for instance, the fact that he put uh, Moses in the same lifetime uh, as Jesus. Obviously, he was getting his information about the New Testament from travelers by word of mouth, uh, but he had no idea. You can go throughout the Quran, which I have read, and find the inconsistencies with the Bible, but at the same time, he's referring to the Bible as an authoritative book. If you don't believe me, go, go talk to the people of the book. Go look at the book, this and that, over and over again. And he contradicts the book over and over again. That's a whole different argument than what we're arguing about. We, myself and the Muslims, believe that the God of the Bible is the only true God. We would have other disagreements about historical evidences, and so I would deal with historical evidences with them. I suppose I'd ask the same question with respect to the Jews. That is, I mean, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith is uh, far from identical and really disagrees on some essential points. Um, and I'd say even down to the very identity of the God, is there any need, and, and if so, how would you um, talk to a Jew about um, their um, misguided understanding? But, and I suppose it's particularly urgent with the Jews, since Christianity is in large measure, although not exclusively derivative of Judaism, and of course Christianity is also derivative of Persian, Zoroastrian, Mithraistic, and Greek ideas, but I don't know if we want to get into that. But in the Old Testament, which the Jews hold to be the, the Word of God, that is the Orthodox Jews do, in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 26, it states that the Jewish Messiah would be cut off or executed before the Temple was destroyed. Well, the Temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Isaiah 53, in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, predicts that the Messiah, whoever he is, would be rejected by the Jews, and Isaiah 42 predicts that he would be accepted, receive a wide Gentile following. So the question that I would have to a, a, a Jew uh, who is Jewish by faith is, if you believe the Old Testament is the Word of God, then uh, what do you think about Jesus since the Old your Old Testament predicts that the Messiah will be executed before 70 AD, will be rejected by the Jews, and will have a wide Gentile following? And Gentile just means non-Jews. I know of no other person in the history of mankind that fulfills all three of those qualifications other than the carpenter from Nazareth who died on the cross of Calvary. Thanks. Question. <laughs> um, I, my question relates to the beginning of what you said, Fernandez, in the beginning, where, uh, where you said that there, it's impossible to have infinity because of the contradictory law, basically the law of contradiction. 
Um, if that's so, how can there be, if nothing we know on earth we truly know is infinite, how can you find proof for a power with infinite, for a being with infinite powers? And basically, just the fact that there are finite, limited beings, when we keep following that back through cause and effect, we find that eventually there has to be infinite, unlimited, eternal existence that grounds our existence. Otherwise, we would have never come into existence in the first place. Uh, that's the, the direction that my argumentation is here for. I did not say that in, an infinite is impossible. I said that an infinite set, an actual infinite set of finites, finite beings is impossible so there's a distinction because I believe God is infinite but without infinite existence without eternal existence uh, there would be nothing in existence now you have to ground finite existence in infinite existence um, Dr. Fernandez you just said but I was going to say if there ever was a time when there was nothing there couldn't be anything today it would be absolutely impossible because from and that God, God is the only thing that I ever know of or heard of that even claimed to have always been there. And I don't have a question as much as a statement. Uh, my statement being that if anybody really wants to know if there is a real existence of a Judeo-Christian God, according to the Word of God, if you seek me with all your heart, you shall find me. And I think that's the most important point that needs to be brought out here tonight.
the Easter rabbit, whatever, or God is an altogether different degree of probability. Now, certainly in a child's mind, any number of things probably exist, but it's how else does the quarter show up, or whatever it is, the ten dollar bill show up under the pillow in place of the tooth, or how do the Christmas present show up? Um, but they are, um, let's say it's not an entirely solid analogy to draw between probabilities in the realm of the senses and probabilities of a very metaphysical sort. Yeah, but I, I would go further to say as well that uh, we were not there when they built the bridge. We did not see them building the bridge. Uh, maybe we didn't even, uh, we don't even know how to build bridges ourselves. We don't, we're not familiar with uh, uh, the way to, to, to build concrete and build those kinds of bridges. And uh, we did not study the uh, the architect's plan to, to build it and the whole nine yards. And it might be a bridge that we come across that we've never seen before in our lives. And we've never seen another car go over it. I think it's still safe to say that uh, the evidence for man's technology on, on bridge building is enough uh, for us to take that leap, if you want to call it that, and assume that the bridge is going to hold us up. So I think we go even beyond uh, sense experience uh, uh, up to that point. By the way, well, I'm, not a, I'm not an empiricist. Uh, I would say that we go into, when we look at sense objects, we make rash, draw rational conclusions from them, and we go in there, our mind isn't completely blank like, like Aquinas would say, but we go in there with some data by which we can make judgments. I can see that these two cups are of equal sides. Well, my idea of equality apparently was there before I even had the sense experience of two things that were equal. And the debate goes on as to you know, what came first in that area. Uh, but I would say that we get an awful lot of our information through sense data and the whole nine yards. But there's got to be some ability in the mind. Aquinas would call it uh, the agent intellect. Something more to the mind than just being the receptive mind. The, uh, the mind is also active. It has the equipment to work on the things we sense and then to draw rational conclusions from that. Would it be rude to reply to that very briefly? I, I think, again, back to the issue of bridges and microphones, uh, one thing you really have to stir into that is the reason we have faith enough to drive over a bridge or use a microphone or go to the supermarket and buy some food um, and take it home and eat it without fear of being poisoned is because of the issue of motive. That is, there is no real motive, although sometimes there is, for building bridges is going to collapse or maybe use a microphone that isn't going to work. Um, whereas, if you raise the question, is there a motive for creating documents for creating a religion in which certain things are claimed about your duties vis-a-vis -vis your fellow man, your fellow woman, um, God. Um, is there a motive for creating such ideas and perpetuating such ideas? And it doesn't stretch the imagination uh, to locate all sorts of probable motives uh, for creating religious ideas to maintain social order, to enforce the idea that some people should be the servants of others, such as existed through the Middle Ages. Um, and so I think it's necessary to stir in that uh, issue of motive when you're comparing building of bridges and the building of religious faiths. Uh, I'd, I'd like to throw something in too.